This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed civic participant, activist, and believer. In this episode, I talk about the president and his racial slurs against people of Asian descent, Ali Stuckey, and her comments that reveal she knows very little about the black church tradition. And I ask black Christians why they write for white outlets. So, First up, my favorite part of the podcast, I get to hear directly from you and read the reviews. We are at 298 reviews up from 275 last episode. I really appreciate you taking the time to write a thoughtful review. This week, we've got two short reviews. The first one is from Chambers59. It's a bit of a critical review, you could say. It's entitled Jerry Falwell for Liberals. It's a two-star review. And this person writes, This is as destructive and unbiblical as the content at the opposite end of the evangelical spectrum. If you are looking for nuance and critical thinking that fairly deals with opposing views, look elsewhere. Okay, Chambers 59, uh, thanks for taking the time to write that. Uh, But I think we need to be careful of this sort of um, playing the middle, right? Like you can't have a view that one would label as liberal. You can't have a view that one would label as conservative. And um, so you end up trying to walk this line in the middle that actually ends up not taking a strong stance on anything. So, you know, that's one thing I would say to that. But hey, I'm, I'm appreciative of anyone who takes the time to write a review, even if it's one that's not so positive. Uh, but we do have positive ones. And this one comes from HMAC333. HMAC writes, I'm so thankful for this podcast. Jamar provides such a refreshing perspective on current events. A few weeks ago, I would have said this podcast is incredibly important and timely, but I feel even more so now. Thank you, Jamar. Now, thank you, HMAC333. I appreciate you uh, highlighting the fact that in these times, when we're looking for more resources, a podcast like Footnotes might be helpful to folks. So I appreciate that. Keep those reviews coming, folks. Uh, we'd love to hit over 300 by the next time we record. I'm absolutely positive we can do that. And all it takes is you. Yes, you. Don't wait for somebody else. Don't rely on, oh, some other listener is going to do it. You're that listener. Be the change you want to see. Or in this case, be the reviewer you want to write reviews, something like that. So keep them coming. I appreciate that. And I have some other news. So the other day I get a call from one of the team members at uh, Zondervan, which is the publishing company that I work with and it published my first book, The Color of Compromise. And he doesn't often call. So it was already unusual. It was after five o'clock. So kind of after work hours. And uh, I pick up and he sounds so different. 
like he's stumbling over his words, his words are halting, um, and the tone in his voice, it sounds like he's about to drop some really bad news, like someone we know is sick or has, has died recently or something. I didn't know what to expect, but I was expecting pretty much the worst. And then he finally gets out that he has seen the New York Times bestseller list for that week, and the color of compromise was on it. So he was calling to tell me that The Color of Compromise made the New York Times bestseller list. I was and still am blown away. And as we record this, the the most recent rankings came out. They do it weekly. And The Color of Compromise is on it for a second week in a row. So two weeks on the bestseller list. I'm blown away. Look, thank you all. Thank you so much for reading the book, for buying the book, for sharing the book, for recommending the book, for reviewing the book, for engaging with the content of the book. Uh, It's just incredible. Thank you so much. Um, I do have a request. (laughs) If you're listening to this and you have read the book and you appreciated the content, but you haven't left a review, please do so. You can do so on Amazon or Goodreads or both just copy and paste. It doesn't have to be long. Just let folks know why you think they should read it or what you took from it. And it really helps to increase the visibility. I think uh, the book is already over, I don't know, several hundred reviews, which is great. So thank you to everyone who's already left a review. And if you haven't, please do so. But I got to say, I've got mixed feelings about making the New York Times list. I mean, for a writer, it, there's there's no more prestigious list to make in terms of a bestseller list than the New York Times. So I'm obviously elated. I never thought this would happen. I mean, the book dropped on in January of 2019, and here it is a year and a half later, summer of 2020, and it's experience, experiencing a renaissance in sales of sorts. But we all know why this is happening. If you look at the bestseller list for the past several weeks, there's been a ton of black authors and a ton of books on topics of racism, anti-racism, anything around this issue. And we know that's because of tragedy. We know that's because of the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Breonna Taylor, the the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, the uh, 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 situation in Central Park with with uh, Mr. Cooper just out bird watching. So all of these events and more have highlighted the need to address racial justice once again. And so I have mixed feelings because I know the the tragedies that that brought about this attention. Nevertheless, I am very grateful that folks are looking to books like The Color of Compromise. I also want to say shout out to my sisters, Latasha Morrison, and her book, Be the Bridge, also made the New York Times last week. And then Austin Channing Brown and her book, I'm Still Here, has been on the bestseller list for a couple of weeks, and it's climbing. I think she was number four in one of the categories. So it's, it's, it's amazing that this many black Christians are on the New York Times bestseller list. And I hope that it is a sign of change. I hope these books help to influence the broader conversation about racial justice. And if you know someone who still doesn't have the book, let them know. Uh, last announcement, 
You can also watch the video teaching series for The Color of Compromise on Amazon Prime. If you've got an Amazon Prime video subscription, it is included with the, the subscription. So there's uh, about 12 videos all around 20 minutes each, and you can watch the entire series. You can binge watch it. Uh, as couple, a couple folks have messaged me and said they've, they've binge watched it. So that's enough about that. It's, it's an incredible time, uh, but a lot of work to do. So let's get to the news. We have a president who revels in racial slurs. So President Trump has started his campaign rallies again. He started in Tulsa and it was a bit of a debacle because uh, his his campaign manager, the people who are managing the, these events said that over a million people had registered for this event. Uh, they were in an auditorium that held just over 19,000 people and about 6,000, a little over 6,000 people showed up. And so there were all these empty rows of blue seats that were there. And it was um, an inauspicious restart to his public campaign rallies in the midst of this pandemic. Well, he wasn't done there. His second campaign rally was in Phoenix, Arizona. And well, just listen for yourself. Here's the clip of the president speaking during the rally and what he said uh, about our brothers and sisters of Asian descent. With COVID, did you ever notice? I said the other night, did anybody see my speech the other night on Saturday night? What I said the other night, there's never been anything where they have so many names. I could give you 19 or 20 names for that, right? It's got all different names. Wuhan. <laughs> Wuhan was catching on. Coronavirus, right? Kung flu, yeah. Kung flu. So the word racist is an overused term, but... In this case, it applies. I mean, the only reason to use those words, Kung flu virus, are to stoke racial, racial resentment, to stoke racist feelings, to uh, invoke a sense of white supremacy. It's a demeaning term. It plays on racist tropes. And it's a dangerous term. It's also not the first time the president has used this term. His uh, One of his own staffers, Kellyanne Conway, a couple of months ago said it was a racist term. She backtracked, obviously, uh, this time when the president used it. But also the president has a long history of racism. You can go back to the 1970s when uh, an apartment building he owned was, was brought under investigation for discriminating against potential black renters. You can look at uh, the late 1980s when he took out several full-page ads in New York newspapers calling for a return of the death penalty in light of the Central Park Five case, now the exonerated five, and he's never made any apology or changed his views or stance on that, to my knowledge. And then you can look into the 2010s when Obama was president, and one of the first things that made Trump, uh, introduced Trump politically, was his trafficking in the birtherism 
uh, uh, conspiracy theory. Obviously, there's 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 no factual data to this. It's it's completely erroneous and false. But the birther conspiracy was trying to say that, well, maybe President Obama wasn't born in the United States. Maybe he was born in Kenya. Um, of course, he was born in Hawaii, but it created this whole big thing where the president ultimately felt compelled to release his long-form birth certificate to put that conspiracy theory to rest. And so that's how Trump came up. We can go to many, many, many more incidents during his presidency and even during his candidacy. So him using a, a, a term like what we just heard him before isn't out of the norm for him. It's a decades long history. And so it's hard to say this, even though I'm somebody who studies race and racism and white supremacy and racial justice. It's hard to just outright call someone racist. But it's true. Like, and it's even harder when it's the president. The president of the United States is racist. Can you say that? Can you say that? Do you believe it? I don't know what else you call it when the president uses this term. Uh, maybe you can say something like the president uses racist terms. We don't know what is, what's in his heart, but we do know what what words he uses and that those words are racist. Okay, however you want to call it. But if you listen to that clip, did you hear the glee from the crowd? Almost this, this sort of salivating for this vocabulary, for this phrase. The president builds up to it. He hears the rising momentum in the crowd and he calls it by different names, like the Wuhan virus. And then he uses this slur. He uses this term and the crowd erupts in cheers. They were waiting for it. They knew exactly the impact it would have. They knew exactly how folks like me who were concerned about racial justice would respond and that we'd call it racist. And somehow the crowds that go to his campaign rally, all the people who cheered, they embrace that. They like that. Almost as if us saying that term is racist or calling them racist for liking it is is fuel for them. And you know the worst part about it? I mean, there's the worst part about it I'll get to in a second because it has ramification for ramifications for people of Asian descent. But but one thing that we have to note, this took place in a church. It took place in Dream City Church. The senior pastor there is Luke Barnett. It's a mega church with a with a 3,000-seat auditorium. Um, you probably learned all you needed to learn about the church's leaders because a few days before this rally, they posted a video that claimed to they claimed to have an air filtration system in the church that eliminated 99% of COVID-19 in just 10 minutes. And they claimed that this t was technology developed by members of their church. Uh, I think after the backlash, they, they quickly took those videos down. But th this is sort of the ethos among the leadership of the church. And then you have this campaign rally at the church. And then you have people cheering for a racist term used by the president at the church. <sighs> wow. Wow. 
And so I wonder, what do you think? What do you think should be done with the pastors? What would you do if you were in that church? I mean, more than likely, if you're in that church, you probably agree with the president coming and didn't have a problem with what he said. But maybe you're in that church and you do disagree. What would you do? What if you were in a different church, but still in the same city? If if you're at a church in Phoenix or the Phoenix area, what would you do? What if you were in their same denomination? It's an Assemblies of God church. What would you do uh, in in that denomination, knowing that uh, this event took place there and, and these words were spoken at, at a church in your denomination? These are relevant questions because you may have to face them at some point, and it's good to think it through. I mean, we're in a presidential election year, a lot of rallies being held, maybe more at churches, uh, and even besides presidential elections, it could be local or state elections. Um, it could be someone else. Uh, it could be another pastor or church leader in the pulpit who says something like this. What would you do? It's good to think through it and and be prepared. Here's one thing you can do right now. Uh, I said probably the worst impact. So there has been a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. Uh, this is from the Anti-Defamation League. On their website, they say, since January 2020, there have been a significant number of reports of AAPI individuals being threatened and harassed on the street. These incidents include being told, quote, go back to China or being blamed for, quote, bringing the virus to the United States. They're being referred to with racial slurs, spat on and physically assaulted. Statements by public officials referring to COVID-19 as the Chinese virus, Kung flu, or Wu flu may be, they're being nice here, may be exacerbating the scapegoating and targeting of a of the AAPI community. And then this article from the ADL goes on to cite some examples. Let me give you just a few from June alone. On June 17th in New Jersey, a Chinese restaurant was vandalized with graffiti that read coronavirus and COVID-19 on the restaurant. On June 14th in Delaware, there were flyers targeting Asian and Asian American students found at an off-campus housing facility of the University of Delaware in Newark. And the flyers included the message, quote, kill China virus. And then on June 13th in Queens, New York, a man at a Bayside 7-Eleven made an anti-Asian remark regarding the COVID-19 pandemic and then verbally harassed an Asian customer whom he also allegedly pushed. Those are just a few examples and they get worse. And if you know people of Asian descent, they've probably got stories just from the past six months. So what can we do? We need to have interracial solidarity, especially among racial and ethnic minorities. And so uh, black people need to show solidarity with people of Asian descent as we face um, different manifestations, but the same root cause, white supremacy and the issues that, that come from that. And so we need to, no matter what your race or ethnicity, we need to denounce anti-Asian racism. And it helps if we do that before Asian and Asian American people have to do it themselves. If they know that they have people of different races and ethnicities who are in the struggle with them. And another concrete way to show solidarity is to support the Asian American Christian Collaborative. 
the Asian American Christian Collaborative. This is a brand new group that formed just a couple of months ago in response to the rise in anti-Asian racism due to this pandemic and the way some of our so-called leaders are are characterizing it. And it's a obviously a Christian group. Uh, I'm friends with Ray Chang. He works at Wheaton College, and I met him there when I was speaking, and we were talking about something like this. And unfortunately, we have these very tragic <laughs> events, these these racist events that sort of spurred uh, the creation of something like this that had been rattling around in his head and, and those of others for a long time. It is truly a collaborative. I'm so impressed by the real breathtaking array of people who are part of this and have made a very sharp um incisive, much-needed organization pulled it together in such a short amount of time. So if you want to learn more about it, visit AsianAmericanChristianCollaborative.com. <laughs> it's all in the name, AsianAmericanChristianCollaborative.com. So let's show solidarity with people of Asian descent and stand against racism in all its forms, no matter who or what group it's directed at. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Conservative commentator Ali Stuckey unwittingly, perhaps, disregards the black church. So I want to talk about a tweet that I saw and responded to and garnered a whole lot of conversation. Uh, so... First of all, who is this person? Her name is Allie Beth Stuckey. I'm not very familiar with her, but I, I looked up her bio and it says she's a speaker, an author, a commentator, and the host of the Blaze TV podcast called Relatable, where she analyzes culture, news, theology, and politics from a Christian conservative perspective. She often satirizes politicians, the media, and trends in popular culture. She's got a book coming out in August called You're Not Enough, and That's Okay, Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. She bills herself as a conservative millennial. She's apparently very popular in her circles. She has a YouTube channel with 72,000 subscribers, an Instagram channel with 155,000 followers, and she's got 287,000 followers on Twitter. And so I guess she's a pretty big deal in her circles, but I don't know much about her beyond what I just read to you. Only thing, only reason she came on my radar is because I saw someone quote tweet her and a comment she made. She said this, quote, in my experience, as a Christian moves to the left politically, they begin to take the Bible less seriously. I've never seen someone become more liberal socially slash politically while becoming more solid theologically. Biblical inerrancy seems to give way 
to cultural relevance. So I saw that, and then I made a comment. I, I, I took a screenshot of it and then made this comment. This statement comes from a version of Christianity hermetically sealed, one might say segregated, from the rest of the Christian body. The entire black church tradition refutes her myopic assessment, and the sentiment is dismissive of countless Christians and their faith. <laughs> you like the vocab in that one? I don't know what I was on, uh, what I was thinking, but... Okay, there's all kinds of issues with this. Like I said, it generated a lot of conversation online. It's got hundreds of retweets so far, and it might even have more comments than retweets. Not a ratio type of thing, uh, just a lot of discussion on on that particular sentiment, people adding to it. And um, it just struck me because when people say things like that, that you can't believe the Bible is the word of God or take the Bible seriously— and be uh, what she calls socially and politically liberal. It just, it ignores the entire black, black church tradition, right? Like most black Christians, first of all, most black people in the U.S. are Christian. And secondly, most black Christians vote Democrat, which I'm sure she would characterize as liberal politically and socially. And so what do you do with that? Have you no idea about that? Or are you simply saying, all these black Christians are, are, are not biblical inerrantists or don't take the Bible seriously. I don't know what she means by biblical inerrancy, but let me give you some statistics. This comes from Pew Research. It says that more than half of black people in the U.S., 54%, both Christian and non-Christian, say they read the Bible or other Holy Scripture at least once a week outside of religious services. Now, this compares to 32% of whites and 38% of Hispanics. So, want to talk about people who take the Bible seriously? Let's talk about people who read the Bible. And black people read the Bible more often than whites or Hispanics in this survey. And then it says 61% of those of sixty one percent of those who are members of the historically black Protestant tradition, so these are historically black denominations, and more than half of black Americans are part of one of these historically black denominations. So sixty one percent read scripture at least weekly. That's similar to the level seen among those in the evangelical Protestant tradition, which is sixty three percent. So statistically, pretty much identical. Um, in addition, that's that's more likely, historically black Protestants are more likely to be reading the Bible than Catholic and mainline Protestants. Um, and it says a sizable share of all black people, meaning 77%, also say that the Bible is the word of God as opposed to, quote, having been written by men, 77% of all black people. That's compared with 57% of whites and 65% of Hispanics. And then they compare black people in historically Protestant traditions. 85% say they believe the Bible is the word of God. And that is comparable to the evangelical Protestant tradition where 88% say so. So again, statistically virtually identical. So the point I'm trying to make with all these statistics is black people in general and black Christians in particular take the Bible seriously, consider it the word of God, and tend to be much more, um, I won't say this as a blanket statement, you have got a whole lot of conservative black people, both socially and politically. 
But you do have a lot of black Christians who are more liberal than conservatives, uh, socially and politically, however you want to define it. Obviously, it's a broad term. She's totally erroneous in saying that black people don't take the word of God seriously. I mean, by and large, black Christians believe the Bible is the word of God. I don't know if they'd use that word inerrantist. Um, it's a more of a theological term, but clearly black people take the Bible seriously and, and try to live by it and read it and make it part of their life and their faith. And so to me, that demonstrates, her comment demonstrates this total ignorance of the black church tradition. Let me give you just one example. Fannie Lou Hamer. You've heard me talk about her before and quite often, and I still will. Um, but she grew up in a rural black Baptist church tradition. She, You might even call her fundamentalist in her beliefs. She most definitely believed the Bible is the Word of God. And if you listen to any of her speeches, it's they're saturated with Scripture. And she's giving these speeches in the pursuit of racial justice, of civil rights, and in particular in the pursuit of voting rights. And so she would probably be labeled by people like Ali Stuckey as politically and socially liberal. But there's no sense in which you could say Fannie Lou Hamer gave a liberal theological interpretation of the Bible or didn't take the Bible as the word of God. And then, of course, I think who I think people that Ali Stuckey has in mind when she makes this, this comment are people like Martin Luther King Jr., who, if you read his papers from seminary, you know, you, you may come away thinking that that you don't agree with all of his theological positions. Now, mind you, a couple of things to bear in mind. Many people have brought this up, that the most um, conservative seminaries, the ones that would proudly wave the flag of inerrantist and the Bible is the word of God and all that, <laughs> tended to be racist, tended to be segregated, and so wouldn't have allowed someone like Martin Luther King, a black man, to attend their schools. But the ones that did were white liberal seminaries uh, in the Northeast. And so he went to Crozier Theological Seminary and was influenced, of course, by liberal theologians that they taught. But, you know, these are seminary papers, so I'm not sure how many of you, if you went to seminary, want your whole theological system to be judged on the papers you wrote in seminary. That's one thing. But beyond that, he preached the Word of God, listened to his sermons, and they were absolutely applicable to the political and social situation of his day. But he's taking the Word of God as the basis for his messages. He's taking the Word of God as the basis for his philosophy and his approach to uh, activism. And you tell me, what white theologian of the period— who would call themselves conservative or a biblical inerrantist, has anything that compares to the concept of the beloved community? Has anything that compares to the idea of equality in action and not just this sort of spiritual disembodied, all the ground is level at the foot of the cross, but actually no one does anything about the unevil, un uneven ground everywhere else? And so there's a praxis element to it so that, um, you know, are you putting so much weight on the, the biblical interpretation that you don't look at how a person lives? You don't look at how a person loves. And I think with that test, 
uh, MLK and, and anyone in those circles would would absolutely measure up and 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 beyond measure up uh, in comparison to to biblical ethics. Uh, so so that's one of the things, and I think one of the things that, that another thing that we have to look at is why I mean. What what does she think is biblical inerrancy and, and and who defines it? I'm not saying this is all relative. I'm just saying that it, it sounds like code for the people I like and admire and learn from in books and sermons and who I look up to all believe these things socially and politically, and they're Christian. And they also say that they are biblical inerrantists and take the Bible seriously. Therefore... If you don't believe what I believe socially and politically, then clearly you're not taking the Bible seriously. And you know what? That has echoes of pro-slavery theologians. Follow me here. It has echoes of pro-slavery theologians because um, the Civil War wasn't just a battle about the fate of race-based chattel slavery. It was a battle over the Bible. And Southern pro-slavery theologians said, we take the Bible seriously. We take God at God's word. The Bible never explicitly condemns slavery. So Northern liberal abolitionist who claims you're a Christian, show me chapter and verse, show me chapter and verse where slavery is wrong. That's essentially what they were saying. And they were saying, since I can point to chapter and verse where uh, the Bible doesn't condemn but regulates slavery, clearly we have the Bible on our side and we take the Bible more seriously. Meanwhile, Christians who were abolitionists were saying, but what about love God and love your neighbor as yourself? What about the Exodus where the people of Israel were literally enslaved and God brought them out of that and actually uses that? In the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Like, what about all that? What about man-stealing, which is condemned in the Old Testament? Um, and so abolitionists were using the general thrust of the Bible and the grand narrative of the Bible, uh, which was toward freedom and liberation and love, to say that there's no way that those things are compatible with race-based chattel slavery. But their opponents said they were being liberal with the Bible and they didn't believe it. So that's what I mean by, by saying it echoes these pro-slavery theologians. And then lastly, she says, um, biblical inerrancy seems to give way to cultural relevance. <sighs> there are a whole lot of Christians who are what she would call more liberal socially and politically who don't give a darn about cultural relevance. This stuff ain't popular, y'all. Tyler and I have talked about this a lot on past the mic, but the sacrifices we've had to make, the courage it takes to sort of stand against your tradition or your denomination, this is not something that most people engage in for fun or for kicks. It doesn't pay as a lot of people like to insinuate that it's just a good way to make money. Nah, we've taken more hits on the financial end than, than I care to recall. Um, and so this idea that that we're giving way to, uh, we're, we're sacrificing fidelity in our faith in order to gain cultural relevance is far outside of the reality that most of most 
black Christians in particular that I know, but many other Christians as well. And so I don't know. I just wanted to comment on it. I didn't expect people to feel so strongly about it, judging by their comments, but it's an important topic to address just so that you know it when you see it. I have a question. Black Christians, why are you writing for white Christian outlets? So this question comes from an Instagram live video I did not long ago. And I just asked that question, black Christians, why are you writing for white Christian outlets? It came up because we're in this moment of sustained protests and uprisings, and there are a lot of white Christian outlets that are trying to put out articles, trying to make statements. And of course, they're inviting black writers to contribute, which, you know, is totally understandable. But it also poses a question. And and I presented this as a question deliberately. I asked, why are you writing for white Christian outlets? And I posed it as a question and not an assertion, because what I'm really not saying is don't ever write for white Christian outlets. I think there's occasions to do that, but I want us to be self-critical and self-reflective about that. I want us to really understand our motives for why we write on, on these outlets. Um, for me, just to be honest, I think it was, I, I, I've, if you think of any major white Christian, especially evangelical website or outlet, I've probably written for them in the past decade. I mean, I, I've done a lot of writing. And when I was first getting into writing publicly, I would most often submit pieces to these websites and outlets. And so I speak from experience. I speak it not someone who is an outsider, but someone who has gone through this. And and I, I had to be self-critical because in my journey of decolonizing my faith and even decolonizing my writing and trying not to write under the white gaze, um, I found that there was a sense of internalized white supremacy, a sense in myself that said, in order to have really made it, in order to consider myself a legitimate writer, blogger, article, composer, I had to get published on these predominantly white Christian sites. They had the clicks, they had the money, they had the name recognition. And so if I could publish there, then that would mean that my writing mattered, my voice mattered. But that's all bunk, of course. Yeah, they do have the clicks. Yeah, they do have the money. And there are reasons behind that, not entirely divorced from racism and white supremacy. But the idea that these platforms somehow lend you more legitimacy, I think, is a form of internalized racism, internalized white supremacy, to say that these outlets, essentially because they're white and they have all these sort of trappings um, that go along with that. But but to say that these outlets have more value than Black-led or uh, those organizations led by people of color, I think is, is really problematic. Here's what I learned writing for these white outlets, is that racism is often treated as a seasonal topic. And so it'll come up when it's Black History Month, it'll come up on a major holiday. But in the normal course of events, there's hardly a peep about race or racial justice. Um, and the other thing I learned is that if it's not just seasonal, it's reactionary. 
And so if something happens in the news that catches national attention, like the murder of George Floyd, well, they'll pause their regularly scheduled programming and they'll give a nod to race, but it's really not what they do. It's not something that's part of the regular programming. Let me put it this way. When you write for a predominantly white Christian outlet, oftentimes your audience is the most fragile white reader. When you're writing for a white evangelical or white Christian outlet, your audience, and this can be unspoken, this can be subconscious, your audience is often the most fragile white reader. And so as a black person or other racial and ethnic minority, when we're writing out or typing out those words, we're thinking in the back of our minds, how is a white person who is not ready for or skeptical of this conversation going to react? I get it. You want to write clearly, you want to be heard, but you also don't want to be censored. And so that's always a risk. And, you know, you're dealing with an audience. You got to ask, who am I writing to? So you're going to be dealing with an audience that oftentimes is not only ignorant of the issues that you're trying to raise, but is often hostile to them. And so those comments turn into a cesspool and never read the comments. But, you know, you glance, you dip in every once in a while. And even if you don't, just knowing it's out there is a form of stress. So it's, it's like it's just it wears on you. So so here's what I have to say. Black Christians think carefully and ask yourself, why am I writing for this white Christian outlet? And think about the alternative. If I write for a black Christian outlet, what is the effect? Well, you get to speak to a bigger black audience. A lot of websites I can think of from Jude 3 Project to Build a Better Us to Be the Bridge to The Witness, of course, we try to intentionally cultivate uh, black audiences. Um, it's not our exclusive audience, but chances are you'll have um, more black people reading it. Uh, secondly, you're, you're not going to have editors who are going to try to censor you. I mean, you can speak forthrightly about racism and white supremacy and racial justice and all those things. And so there's a freedom there, but also you're supporting black led ministries. And to be honest, we need all the support we can get. Uh, as as much as black people want to see progress, I mean, we can be a lot more intentional about supporting one another, especially when it comes to sort of public facing ministries like websites and, and writing for them. And so obviously there's a pitch here. Please write for The Witness. Um, you can email submit, S-U-B-M-I-T, at thewitnessbcc.com. Or if you go to thewitnessbcc.com, uh, you scroll all the way down to the bottom, there's a link that says write for us. We give you guidelines, we give you tips and pointers, and we also give you instructions for how to submit. So we welcome it, not just from our black Christian readers, but from uh, allies and advocates across the racial and ethnic spectrum. We'd love to have you, but just ponder that. Why do you feel the need to write for white Christian outlets? And if you want to learn more, uh, there is a link in the show notes for the IG live video. It's only about 15 minutes long and you can hear my more extended thoughts there. That's it for this week. 
Remember to support The Witness Foundation. Visit thewitnessfoundation.co and help us raise a million dollars for Black Christian ministry. Please like my author page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby and the number one, Jamar Tisby one. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at Jamar Tisby. If you had feedback, questions, anything you want to share, please email at footnotespod and the number one at gmail.com, footnotespod1 at gmail.com. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness Podcast Suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know.